Well, let me ask you, what to date has been the most momentous day of your life? Has it been the day you were married? The day your child was born? The day you made your first million? (laughs) Still waiting. It's different for each of us. Brian Habana was in this congregation before he went off to France. I dare say he would put his marriage and his kids above winning the Rugby World Cup, but I'm sure that was up there. And we all have, we can think of significant moments and significant days in our lives. But tonight, I'm going to talk about the most significant day of your existence. And that's the day, it's inevitable, we will all experience it. It is the day we will stand before the throne of God and hear his judgment. I'm glad some of you are excited about that. Now, in Hebrews 6, and I believe you've been doing something of a series, in, in the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people, let's, let's leave the basics and, uh, you know, the, the, the milk and go on to solid food. Let's leave the basics. And then he lists a whole, whole bunch of basic doctrines that are supposed to be the simple, easy stuff that we all know. But when I talk to people about judgment, it's amazing how little so many Christians know. But I think it's a key to how we live our lives. Understanding that in many ways we are living for that moment. And for us who know Christ and have surrendered to, that, to Christ, and, and we'll cover this, that day holds no fear. Yeah, I'm not afraid of dying. I'd like to die in my sleep. I, I, I don't, you know... I'd rather not be burned at the stake or anything like that. I'm not the bravest man in the world. I'm not afraid of dying, and I'm not afraid of standing before the Lord. But I will tell you this. When I was in ICU with COVID two years ago, three years ago, time flies, and there was a moment they gave me the wrong meds, and uh, they thought I was going to die. They were getting the defibrillators out, and you know it was like an episode of ER, but from the other perspective. It looks very different when you're down there. Stay away from the light. And there's a very real sense. I, I knew it. My, my heart rate had gone above 240. I had no blood pressure. And I was like, this could be it. And I can tell you in all honesty, I did not fear dying. But I did say this. Lord, I don't think I've done everything I need to do yet. I don't think I'm ready to stand before you yet. Give me more time. I don't think I've fulfilled what you've asked me to do in my life. If you take me, take me, and I've got to trust you to look after my wife and kids. But there's some sobering realities of Judgment Day for us that should stir us into a passion and an action, and that's why I want to share it with us. And also, if we know the reality of... um, The fact that there is a judgment day, it should radically alter how we interact with those who don't know Jesus. I I try not to um, 
overindulged social media, but something caught my eye a while back. Have you heard of the, the magician's, uh, the illusionist, Penn and Teller? The one who always talks and the one who never talks. I can never figure out which one's which. But the vocal one is quite a radical atheist. And he posted a video on social media. And basically it said this, one of the reasons I don't believe in God is if Christians really believed it, they'd be doing everything they possibly could to convert me. And they're not. So how real can it be? Yeah? We have abstract theologies, and our abstract theologies, the reason for this tonight, talking about judgment, is not so that we can add to our knowledge base. D.L. Moody said the Bible wasn't given for information, but for transformation, and a radical personal revelation and understanding of the judgment of God should radically affect how we live. And I want to unpack a couple of things and maybe correct some misunderstandings. And then I want to give us an opportunity that if we're not convinced that when we stand before God, we're safe, then there's an opportunity to to get to that place tonight for every single one of us because it's an open offer. So let's have a look at two scriptures first that talk about, that cover the judgment, quite long passages of scripture, and then we'll start going systematically through some of the issues around the day of judgment that we need to look at. So the first one might not surprise you is in the book of Revelation. I'm from Revelation chapter 20, and this is the Apostle John who has this vision. He has this revelation of, of, what, of the future and of eternity, and he breaks into eternity and the things that are going to happen at the end of all things. And in this vision, this is what he sees. Revelation 20 from verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So this is the end of all things, before there's a new heaven and a new earth. And this is Jesus on his throne. Keep going. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Or according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, woman and child, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's quite a sobering passage. And there's a few things in there already as, as we read that. Some of you might have questions. Wait a minute. That, I don't know how that fits into my theology. Don't worry, we'll get there. And then another passage about judgment is, is in the form of a parable that Jesus told. He told a story. And the story likens people to sheep and goats. And many of us know this parable. Who, who's, who's listened to Keith Green's music? Keith Green does a really good version of this in song. It's excellent. 
But in Matthew 25, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's from verse 31 to 46. Let's not turn there. Let's, let's just kind of give you the, um, the condensed version. Basically, on Judgment Day, it says the Lord will separate people into two categories, sheep and goats. And to the sheep, you'll say, enter my rest. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. You visited me in prison. And they'll say, but when? When did we do that, Lord? He said, in as much as you did it to the very least of my brethren, you did it to me. Enter into my rest. Enter into that place I've prepared for you. He said, but to the goats. He said, you didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me in prison. Away from me. Depart from me into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. And here's a sobering truth, because the subject of hell is a little uncomfortable for us Christians, isn't it? We'd much rather say, come to Jesus. Jesus loves you and he'll make your life better, which is half true. We're a bit comfortable saying, you need Jesus, otherwise you're going to hell. That's not very politically correct these days. I don't know about you, but even I, I, I sometimes get a little, I'm like, oh, how am I going to come across? And many Christians are shying away from the concept of hell. You know who didn't shy away from the concept of hell? Jesus. He spoke about it a whole lot. We talk about being saved. Saved from what? I'm saved from a life of mediocrity to live my best life. No. Your best life now, hashtag YOLO. Best life ever. We're saved from death. We're saved from hell. And hell is not the place where the devil has a big big pitchfork and torments people. Hell is where the devil will be punished along with those who follow him. And if you listen to the Keith Green song, he finishes, his, he finishes his song with this line. It says, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this scripture, is what they did or didn't do. Does that mess with anybody's theology here? That the difference between heaven and hell is what you did or didn't do. Does that mess with anybody's theology? What about that first scripture I read from Revelation 20? And every man will be judged according to what he has done, according to his works. Does that mess with anybody's theology? Okay, well, that's why we're going to unpack it tonight. So by the time you leave, you won't be confused anymore. Is that all right? Cool. So we've got a lot to get through. So I'm not going to turn to all the scriptures. I might reference them. But if you're really interested in the scriptures... uh, I can send them to you. So there is going to be a day of judgment. When Jesus returns, and here's spoiler alert, he will return. When will he return? I don't know. I just know it's closer now than it's ever been before. How long have we got? I don't know. 
I don't know how long you've got. I don't know how long I've got. I thought I'd live forever and then I'm on a hospital bed thinking this could be my last day. So when Jesus returns for the, for the entire world, I don't know. But I know I don't have much more than 50 years left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, optimist, glass, glass half full. But you wonder why do we have judgment day? Because in one sense, aren't people already judged in this life? Aren't we already judged according to our response to Christ? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it goes on to say, but those who reject him are already condemned. So one thing we need to realize is the day of judgment is not when God decides who goes where. He already knows. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. The fancy word for that is omniscient. And we don't all get a turn standing before him and saying, hey, this is all the good stuff I've done and, and trying to convince him. Because he already knows us more than we know ourselves. In a human trial, you have to present evidence to the judge because the judge only knows what he's told. But that judgment day, we will stand before the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. He was there when nobody else was. He saw what nobody else saw. He heard. And your heart, which is deceitful above all things, even you don't know the motivations of your own heart sometimes. But God does. So he doesn't have to hear the evidence. And sometimes I hear atheists. I, I heard Stephen Fry say, and somebody said, well, if God is real and you get to heaven, what are you going to say to him? And he said, I'm going to tell God how bad he is and how evil he is for all the things he did in the Old Testament. You arrogant so-and-so. How dare you even begin to ponder the fact that you could actually have an argument with God? Have you ever tried to have an argument with somebody on a topic and they're so much more knowledgeable than you that even if they're wrong, you can't argue with them? Right? God's never wrong and he knows infinitely more than you do. The very fact that we could somehow have a debate with God and try and convince him is like asking an earthworm to convince you not to put him on a fishing hook. Oh, it's only a laptop. Oh, it looks fine. Thank you, Jesus. Might not be, we'll tell in a minute. Okay, so if God already knows what's going to happen, and everybody's eternal destiny, what is the purpose of Judgment Day? Any ideas? I think there's three. One, the first one. On that day, God will be vindicated. His judgments will be proven right. Because now we see in part, but then we'll see in full. And all these people who say, oh, I'm a good person. Yeah? How many people here think they're a good person? Come on. I know you know the theological answer, but... 
The honest answer. Let's do away with years of tradition and actually be honest in church. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> How many of you actually think you're a good person? Come on. Yeah. And when you look around, you probably are. Most of you haven't robbed banks. Yeah. Most of you pay your taxes. You know, all of those things. Compared to, but compared to who? And then when God says, I'm going to do this, when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, when, you know, all of the things in the Old Testament, we go, how could God do that? How could God tell Abraham to kill his son? On that day, we'll just all be silent before him, knowing that his ways are perfect and all his ways are just. There will be no accusation against God on that day because every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The only difference is this. You can choose to voluntarily do it now or be forced to do it then. So God will be vindicated. The magnitude of his salvation plan will be revealed. And we think salvation's pretty awesome, but we have no idea. I loved, I think it was R.C. Sproul on a video uh, answering a question in, in, in some kind of discussion forum. And somebody asked him, don't you think God overreacted a bit with Adam and Eve? You know, all they did was eat a piece of fruit, and then it was like death forever. And his response is, how dare you? God didn't overreact. He underreacted. These creatures of the dust, these insignificant little worms, dared to defy the creator of the universe. For that, they deserve eternal punishment because they sinned against a perfect and eternal God. He didn't overreact, he underreacted. And when we understand just how much we deserve judgment, only then will we see the kindness and the love and the mercy of God. Paul tries to hint at it. He says in Romans, consider therefore the kindness and the severity of God. Unless you understand how severe God can be, you really don't understand how merciful he's been to you. But on that day, we will begin to see. And that's one of the reasons worship in heaven is going to be so much more awesome than it is here. Not just because we see him face to face, but because we see his plan unfolded. The depths of our depravity wiped away. It's also a day of publication. That's when the final destination of each person which has previously been hidden will be made known. And it's the time of execution, not killing execution as in it actually being done. At that time, God will assign each and every person to their place of eternal residence. That is not the day when we can try and bargain with God and do a deal. If we haven't surrendered to him by then, it's too late. Oh, I was meaning to get round to it, God. And all this will happen 
at the end of the age, end of this age. After Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. And scripture speaks of the day of judgment. I don't know if it's a literal 24 hours. I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm not even sure if time works the same in heaven as it does here. But there'll be a definite period of time in which this takes place. And on the judgment, it may surprise you to know on judgment day there will be more than one judge. Because the Father will be judging. We see that in Matthew, in Romans, in Thessalonians, in Hebrews, lots of places. The Son will be judging. The angels will be judging. And we will be judging. Do you know Scripture tells us that we will judge angels? Some of you are looking very confused. I wish I could clarify, because that confuses me too. (laughs) I don't know exactly how that will work. What gives us the right or the privilege or the knowledge to be able to judge angels, but I'm sure in many ways it's a judgment that's delegated from God, and once it has been revealed to us, our judgment will simply be an assent to the ultimate judgment of the Father. That's who will be doing the judging. It's a bit strange when people say, Only God can judge me. I said, does that thought really comfort you? (laughs) I'd rather be judged by man than by God. Because man might get it wrong, but there's only a certain amount he can do to me. God's judgment will always be right. So who will be judged? Well, as we've already said, angels will be judged. Jude and Second Peter and 1 Corinthians tells us that angels will be judged. We know that Satan, when he rebelled, he dragged a bunch of angels with him. And they didn't keep their proper place. And they will be judged. And mankind will be judged. All men will be judged. That means believers and unbelievers. We will all be brought forward for the judgment of God. But for us, as I said before, that judgment needs hold no threats. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're genuinely in Christ Jesus, we know that we cannot be condemned. Just as an aside, it doesn't say there is no conviction for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is definitely conviction. There's just no condemnation. I do not fear condemnation if I know that I'm in Christ Jesus. But if we're going to be judged, it would be helpful to know what criteria we're going to be judged on. Would that be helpful? What are the standards? Well, if we go back to that that scripture in Revelation, I want to unpack it a little bit. And then we'll deal with it systematically. It says that as all of mankind was stood before God, it says books were opened, plural. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, according to their works. And whoever was not found in the book of life 
was cast into the lake of fire. And so we see here, there are multiple stages of judgment. And the first one is, okay, here's the Lamb's book of life. Who's in it? Everybody that's in it, come here, you're the sheep. All those that are not in the Lamb's book of life, you're the goats. Okay? That's the first thing. So whether you're in the Lamb's book of life or not. And I know there's lots of debate and discussion in the church and has been for centuries. Can we lose our salvation? And there's different arguments on that. But there is a warning in Scripture about having our names removed from the Lamb's book of life. We should not take it for granted. We, we should work not to earn our salvation, but work out our salvation in fear and trembling and ensure our names are in that book. But once we know whether our names are in the book or not in the book, then those two groups of people are then judged according to their works. And essentially, every man will be judged according to the measure of revelation that he's received. It will be judged in the light of the revealed will of God to a person. So some people say, how is it fair that God can judge some person in a tribe in the middle of the Amazon who's not heard the gospel? Okay. I can't get around that and say, well, God will let him into heaven because he hadn't heard of Jesus. Right? Because Jesus is the only name under heaven by which man may be saved. And it's interesting as, as I read publication after publication, I'm hearing hundreds and thousands of stories of people in the Muslim world and elsewhere having dreams and visitations of Christ. Nobody's been able to get, them to, get to them with the gospel, but they've been genuinely seeking God. And if you genuinely seek God, he will be found. But I believe that somebody who's heard the gospel over and over again, seen the goodness of God, and deliberately chosen to reject it, will be judged more harshly than a person who's never heard the gospel. Because we'll be judged according, with great power comes great responsibility, with great revelation comes great responsibility. And that's why, controversially, I say to some people, do yourselves a favor and don't come to church. Because if you're going to come to church and hear the word of God and not respond to it, all you're doing is storing up a house, your judgment for yourself ultimately. First prize is listen and obey and respond. But if you're going to refuse to respond, rather don't get any more revelation. <laughs> hear what I'm saying there, not what I'm not saying, please. I'm not saying don't come to church. I'm saying Respond. <laughs> The greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility for godliness. We see that in Matthew 11. We see that in Romans 1. Because in Romans 1, it tells us that even those that had never received the law, the Gentiles who'd never had a direct revelation, had never had God visit them on Mount Sinai, says they are without excuse because the universe itself displays the attributes of God. All you have to do, if you've never been in church or heard the gospel, all you have to do is look around you and go, there must be a God, reveal yourself. And some man in the Amazon who's never heard the gospel has still had the same opportunity because he's got the same brain that we have. 
and the same spirit, the same soul, and to look around and say, there is a creator. Who is he? So consequently, there are degrees of punishment. You know, some people say, there must be a special corner in hell for that person. I don't know if there are special corners in hell, but there are certainly degrees of punishment. In Second Peter, Peter writing about some teachers, some false teachers who were leading people astray. He said, it would be better for them, I'm paraphrasing a little, but not much. It would be better, they would be worse off than if they were never saved. Think about that. Before they were saved, they were going to hell. Now they've received the gospel, they got saved, and now they've rejected the gospel, the preaching of false teaching, the leading people astray, and in light of their great revelation, their punishment would be greater than if they were never saved. Tonight's going to be a sobering night, guys. Just because some truths are difficult for our finite, puny human minds to grasp doesn't mean we've got to avoid them. I said this at the, at the um, apostolic training time before 412. You know, the world has made love the overarching primary attribute of God. God is love. God is love. How, how many atheists and non-believers like to tell you God is love? Right? That's the one thing they keep throwing at you. God is love. Do you know that God never revealed himself as the loving one of Israel? I'm not saying he doesn't love but he's the Holy One of Israel. In Revelation, when we see the elders and the living creatures and the angels worshipping before the throne, they don't shout, love, love, love. That was Lennon and McCartney. (laughs) All the teenagers are going, who? (laughs) It's holy, 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 and God is holy and righteous. How can a loving God judge? How can a righteous God not judge? If I was to break into your house tonight and murder your children and get arrested and stand before a judge, and the judge, knowing that I'm guilty, said to me, oh, you know what? I'm a nice guy. I love you so much. Don't worry. I'll let you go off scot-free. Would you consider that a loving, good judge? Not for a second. You would be crying injustice. He's an evil judge. So how can God, who is perfectly righteous and all-knowing, not judge? Then he would no longer be a righteous God, and he wouldn't be a loving God. So we're going to be judged according to the light of the revelation that we've had. And what will be judged? All the things done in our lifetime. Our deeds, our words, and our thoughts. In short, according to Matthew 6, Matthew 10, Luke 12, 1 Timothy 5, other scriptures, lots of scriptures, nothing... Nothing now hidden will not be revealed. Everything you've said, done, or thought will be revealed. How many of you find that really scary? 
I do. Can I have a time machine and go back and not do a whole bunch of things I did? You're going to look at that and go, but Mike, you were an elder. (laughs) Now I know some of you already, you're two steps ahead. And I can see the quizzical looks. How can we be judged according to our words, thoughts, and deeds if we've been forgiven and God has forgotten them? Has God forgotten your sins? Well, if he's forgotten them, then there's something he doesn't know. And he's no longer omniscient. And not only that, but if he's forgotten them, there's something the devil knows that God doesn't. Because I know from experience, and I'm sure you do too, the devil does not forget what you've done. And he likes to remind you all the time. Only the bad stuff, of course. Actually, no, sometimes he reminds you of the good stuff you've done. Because if he can't condemn you, he'll try and puff you up with pride, right? And that's why we need an omniscient judge. Because even the good things we've done will be judged. So the worship team did awesome tonight. And Adam led them well. So is there a reward for Adam for that? I don't know. Maybe he was up there because he loves the spotlight. I don't know. Maybe I'm only doing this because I'd rather, I'd rather preach than listen to any of you guys. <laughs> and here's the scary thing. The things that I do, even the good things, I'm not sure if my motives are totally pure. Even giving to the poor, is it really for the poor or is it to make me feel better? And if God had forgotten your sin, then the devil would keep coming and reminding him every day. And that would be a very strange conversation. Hey, look at that thing Adam did. What thing? You know, that thing. I can't remember. Well, it was this. Oh, that's pretty bad. (laughs) But Hebrews does tell us, he says, their sins I will remember no more. And he's he's cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. All those scriptures, and those are true, but we have to have a balance on this. If Carl owed me a million dollars, I wish. And he came to me, he said, Mike, there is no way I can repay that million dollars. I I, I can do my best, but there is no way I'll ever repay you. And I said to him, Rue, I love you. Forget about it. What do I mean? It means the debt is paid. I will no longer hold it against you. Our relationship is not affected. It's as if it never happened. He's not actually forgotten about it, but forget about it. Yeah? And so our sins are removed from us. God is aware that we did them. It has to be for the judgment to be proper. But in knowing that we did them, he sees them separate from our identity and separate from something that we are held accountable to or judged for because he sees them, they've been put on Christ. And he sees us wrapped in Christ. But he's aware both of our righteous legal status and our less than perfect (laughs) characters. (laughs) Okay? Okay? 
Does that make sense to you? He's not going to hold you. He's not going to judge. But he's got it. And he's got to do that because even to reward you for the good that you've done, he's got to know the motives of your heart. He's got to know the sinful nature that's involved in even the good that we do. Or the pride that we feel in the good that we've done. So we will stand before God's judgment seat. But the good news is that Jesus is there as our advocate interceding for us and saying not guilty. You go, but even so, even though God won't judge me, everybody else will. If there is a great big movie screen in the sky that day and everything I've ever done will be revealed on that movie screen, that's going to be really embarrassing and shameful. But is it? How many of you have ever shared your testimony about what you were like before you came to Christ? And when you tell that testimony, are you full of shame? Or does Jesus get all the glory? And so everything will be revealed. And the worse we look, the more Jesus will get the glory. Because it's like, 15 rugby players who've always been, all been playing in the mud and we're all full of mud from head to toe and we get up and go, ah, oh, he's dirtier than I am. No, we're all filthy. And he will wipe away the shame. And so everything that is made known won't be made known to condemn us, but to glorify him. And when you see what a stupid, sinful, depraved idiot I am. You will give glory to God for how he managed to do anything in the church through me. And I'm not even kidding. How could God use him? And on that day you will see. And you'll go, wow, if we thought Mike was anything, we're sorry. But Jesus, you are everything. And so that's why we can be judged in terms of reward for what we've done. But it's not a judgment in that sense like a judge sentences us. It's a judgment almost more akin to a judge in a gymnastics competition. It's like looking and saying, this is the reward you deserve. But even that statement's prophetic, because it, uh, pathetic because even the reward you deserve, you didn't deserve. Even that was grace. I'll unpack that. So if we're saved by faith and condemned by unbelief, how can we be judged according to our works? Well, it's quite simple. In Galatians, in James, in Matthew, we're told multiple times that faith and works are so intertwined that they can't be separated. Faith without works is dead. So it's not that we're saved by our works. We're saved by faith. Works is the evidence of that faith. And so we can be rewarded for our works, which is a fruit of faith. And faith is a grace gift of God. 
So let's have a look at the parable of the sheep and the goats. Notice a few things about that. Jesus' decision about who goats were is not made after an investigation into their life and what they've done. It's done beforehand. He separates them and then says, this is what you've done. And then the sheep are considered blessed, not rewarded, blessed. They are objects of God's undeserved favor. And the sheep are told to enter an inheritance. Who works for an inheritance? You don't. An inheritance is given to you because it's ordained by the Father. And the sheep are surprised at the reward. When? Why are we getting rewarded, Lord? When did we do that? And so when we see that, we clearly see that they weren't doing what they did in order to gain a reward. They were doing it as an overflow of their faith and love. And so judgment according to works is really saved by grace through faith. It's the same thing. You know, there's only one time the phrase faith alone is used in the New Testament. And it says we are not saved by faith alone. We are, but we're not. It's faith that saves us, but it never stands alone. If it doesn't result in fruit, if it doesn't result in works, it's not faith. And the judgment of believers is not with a view to acceptance or rejection, but with a view to determining rewards. Salvation is by grace, and all believers are saved equally. None of us deserved it. None of us could earn it. None of us is good enough. But there is a variation in rewards received on the day of judgment. But even the rewards are not merited. They are gifts of grace. Because if I can preach, let me tell you, It is only by the grace of God that I can preach. And so believers, everything we do will be revealed. And that is a sobering thought. And while I said, in in a sense, it's not for our embarrassment or our shame, maybe it should sober us next time we're deciding to do something we'd rather nobody else knows. If a fear of God isn't enough, maybe a fear of each other might help. It's like the story of the, the, the church leader who's walking down the road. And as he's walking down the road, he sees one of his congregants stumble out of a pub and, and hide, behind a, hide behind a bus shelter. And so the, the pastor says to him, John, you can hide from me, but God sees everything. And John says, yeah, but God isn't a gossip like you. LAUGHTER God does see all, but maybe this this sobering truth that everything hidden will be revealed might be a sobering truth to help us. And there will be degrees of rewards. What do those rewards look like? I don't know. Heaven is going to be so awesome. I don't know how it can be more awesome. I've got a theory about why God doesn't tell us more about heaven. Because if we really knew what it would be like, we'd be miserable till we got there. Yeah? We'd all be trying to get there in a hurry. (laughs) I want to say, guys, fear of death amongst Christians is way too high. We shouldn't fear death. 
It's got to come to us all anyway, sooner or later. Death, where is your sting? Death was the last enemy that Jesus defeated. And death which came as a curse. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with the concept of death is when God created man, he didn't create us to die. We weren't designed to cope with death. Death invaded our human experience as a curse. But what God does is God turns curses into blessings. And now death actually... It's a separation from the body, but it's uniting with him. To die is to be with Christ. It brings about blessing. Don't go murder each other in order to bless one another. I'm not suggesting that. Be blessed, brother. (laughs) But I want to get on to perhaps the most sobering part of judgment. That those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life. are destined for hell. You know, one of the things I was challenged with a while ago, and and I've heard it, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but even in Josh Jen, when we're doing an altar call, when we're asking people to respond to salvation, we kind of say things like this. Outside of Christ, you might be destined for a Christless eternity, which is true. But to somebody who's never known Christ, what's a Christless eternity? Hey, I've done all right up to now. Yeah. And a Christless eternity is terrible. But people who don't know Christ don't know that. The reality is outside of Christ, it's not just a Christless eternity, it's hell. And here's the scary thing. The devil didn't make hell, God did. God created hell. And all things, all things are created And sustained by God. So God didn't just create hell. He sustains hell. How can a loving God send people to hell? And so people go, well, he doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go. Well, yeah, people do choose to go in a way. But God also does send them. Because that's his judgment as God. But it's the loving thing to do. And you might not be able to wrap your head around that, but there's got to be a a point. And where that point is for each of us is different. But There's got to be a point where we try and understand him and then come to that point where we know we can't and get on our knees and say, you are holy and all your ways are just. And I don't understand all your ways any more than a three-year-old child understands why I say, no, you can't have a lollipop. It doesn't seem a very living thing to do. Because you're only three years old. And you asking God why he can do what he can do is like a worm asking you what you can do and can't do. And the gap in existence between you and a worm is infinitely smaller than the gap between you and God. I don't believe in evolution, but the evolutionists have one thing right. We are more similar to worms than we are to God. It's true. There's a widespread rejection of the concept of hell today, even amongst Christians. And many struggle to identify hell with a God of love. But as I said before, Jesus, the man of love, 
spoke about hell more than any other person. And the word hell, the Greek word Gehenna, was a Greek version of an Aramaic word. For an area south of Jerusalem where parents would sacrifice children to a false god. The valley became a symbol or a type of sin and of anguish. And its name became a designation for the unending fire of the final place of punishment. Now, what does hell look like? Well, the reality is hell is described in a lot of metaphors. Okay? How literal the language is, we don't know. We just know if we take the metaphors alone, we know it's a place nobody wants to be, and I don't want anybody to be there. Jesus talks about fire, darkness, the worm, gnashing of teeth, hopeless remorse, bitterness, suffering, hopelessness. Separation from God. And it's interesting, there are two words for separation, or it's two words for presence, when it talks about the presence of God in the New Testament. In Thessalonians, it talks about hell and says you will be there outside of the presence of God. But in Revelation, it says they will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb and the angels. So how do we reconcile that? Well, we reconcile that by the fact that God is everywhere and sustains everything. So in one sense, he will be present. But you know what no human being has ever experienced until then? is complete separation from the face presence and an element of the grace of God. Even the most ardent atheist, serial killer, cannibal, the most evil person is still a recipient of some measure of God's grace until that day. This world, if God separated himself totally from it, would be a lot worse than it is now. The grace of God is holding back a degree of evil. And nobody knows or has experienced just how terrible it would be to be in that dark place, separated from God, separated from anything good, because all good things come from God, and be completely devoid of hope. Some people say, yeah, but the Bible talks about being destroyed. Apolymai is the Greek word, and it means to destroy. And so people aren't in hell forever, they just annihilated, they're just destroyed. But when we look at the parables, when we look at the stories, that word apolymai can mean destroy, but it can mean to be lost, to be ruined. It's the same word that Jesus uses for the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. They're not annihilated, but they become useless, ruined, lost, And hell goes on forever. The Greek word ionios literally means without end. It's the same word used to describe God who lives forever and ever. It says hell will be forever and ever. I 
I heard a very powerful testimony a while ago. A young man, he was growing up, he was doing quite well at school, he had a fairly moderate uh, kind of good life. Until one night at a cousin's house, his cousin sexually abused him. And his life went off the rails. He started failing at school, doing drugs, getting involved in all kinds of high-risk behaviors and sexual behaviors and where he was, he was abused again and all kinds of things happened. And he was full of bitterness and full of hate and full of anger and self-loathing and shame until he met Jesus. And Jesus took it all away. And as he was telling this testimony, he says, I'm praying for my cousin because I want him to know what I've experienced. I don't want my cousin to go to hell. I want my cousin to meet Jesus. How passionate are we that nobody we know would go to hell? How much are we investing in our families and our children? My younger daughter's doing matric this year. And we're investing in it. We're we're trying to help her. We're putting money and time aside so that she can pass her matric. Guess what? That pales into insignificant compared to how much I need to invest that she passes that test one day. Your kid might be a brilliant athlete and might get trials to play for the Springboks one day. Maybe a small percentage chance, but there's a 100% chance they're going to stand before the great white throne. And my hope is none of us here would get there with regret. And we can say, well, Jesus will wipe that. Yes, he will. But for a moment... I don't want to feel that regret. When I stand before him and he looks me in the eyes, I don't want to see disappointment. When he plays that screen of my life and shows me what he had for me and how little I walked in, I don't want that. And you know, all of the rewards, I don't know if it's houses or Ferraris or whatever it is you're into, I don't know what the rewards are in heaven, but I tell you what the greatest reward can possibly be for any person is to stand, he look you in the eyes with pride and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know what? Any amount of sacrifice, suffering, hard work, perseverance is worth it for that one moment. And to be there while we see a great multitude being told, depart from me, you wicked ones, to a place reserved for the devil and his angels. Yes, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth from them. I think there may be weeping from us for a while. It says he will wipe away every tear. I think we will cry. When we see the multitudes separated for all eternity. Is this just some theology? Is this one in a series? Some basic foundation so we can put our building blocks together and say, I've got good theology. I hope not. I hope this is a rallying call and a clarion call to say we don't have much time. 
I was preaching a similar preach in Sunningdale a while back. I said, nobody here knows how long. I said, you could drop dead today. And that night, an eight-year-old boy died. I'm not saying he died because I said it. It was just, who would have thought? Everyone, everyone thinks they've got more time. Stir up in our hearts, Lord, a passion for your name. If I had the cure for AIDS and kept it to myself, what would I be? I have the cure for cancer. And I don't tell you because I might be embarrassed in case you don't believe me. What kind of man would I be? We have a message that is much more powerful than a cure for AIDS, a cure for cancer. Because they can only destroy the body. The message, the gospel we have, destroys something that destroys the soul. We need to be a people who respond, knowing. Judgment Day is not a fairy tale that we tell children to make them behave like Father Christmas in December. It is the truth of God. Revealed to us by his grace. To spur us on. To share his fame. Can we close our eyes? I know there's visitors here tonight. And some of my message has not been perhaps politically correct. It's maybe even been confusing or offensive to some. But it is true. And every single one of us, every one of us, is going to stand before God. And the question, the most important question, is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? In other words, to put it in non-jargon, have you surrendered your life to Jesus and said, I don't want to live for me anymore. I recognize you as the holy, righteous, perfect one and that my life must be surrendered to you that I might have eternal life. And if you've never done that, if you're sat here tonight and you're not comfortable with the idea of standing before God, if you have doubts or if you know for sure that you're not going to be in that book, You're not going to be counted amongst those in relationship with Jesus. Do not leave this place tonight without making right with him. Because you cannot earn it. It's a free gift. You just surrender and he gives it to you. The free gift of eternal life. We all deserve hell. We all deserve punishment. Because we've all fallen short of God's standards. But the free gift of God is eternal life. And if you know you need to respond, to, not to me, if you know you need to respond to him tonight and say, I want to make sure that my name is in that book. I want to make sure that I'm saved. I want to make sure that my eternal destiny is heaven and not hell. I want you right now just to raise your hand. Right now, don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. Thank you. Thank you for your courage. Thank you. That is awesome. Thanks, you can. Anybody else? 
I do want to punt. I don't want to overdo this. But this is the most important message, the most important thing that anybody can ever do. Is anybody else? You want to make sure tonight that you're right with God. That if you were to pass away tonight, that when you stand before God, you're accepted because of what Jesus did when he died for you. Anybody else? Just want to pray for those, those young guys. Thank you, Jesus. We could never save ourselves. None of us is clever enough, good enough, strong enough. We deserve punishment because we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've offended you, the perfect holy God. But you sent your son to die in our place. That if we believe in him, if we put our faith in him, if we make him Lord, then we will not perish, but have everlasting life and an eternal relationship with the perfect loving God who wants the best for us. And so for those young men that have responded, pray that as they repent of living life for themselves and their old way of life and turn to you and make you Lord, that even now their names are being written in that book. The book of life. The book of life. That they would never hear the words, depart from me. They would hear the words, enter my rest. Thank you, Jesus. And then for the rest of us, I'm not going to ask for a response because it's easy to get people to stand and stick their hands up for, for certain kind of calls. My challenge, my challenge to you, my plea to you, my plea to me. Can we take this truth and make it a reality in how we live our lives with each other and in this world in which we live, which is a lost and broken generation that desperately needs Jesus for this life and even more so for the next. Amen.